If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurderinmyfamily. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. Please allow me a moment to share some important information before we get started. If you find that you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to podcasts so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or by searching for the Murder My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the Murder My Family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include such things as early commercial-free access to new episodes of the show, plus bonus material not heard in regular episodes, and may include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate and keep the podcast going and improving. One last note, and it's a big one. I'll be on Podcast Row this June 7th through 9th at the CrimeCon True Crime Convention in New Orleans. I'll be representing my other podcast, Criminology, and of course I'll be repping the murder of my family as well. I've been there two years in a row, and I love it. If you are a true crime fan, CrimeCon is a great place to meet and talk with some of the most well-known true crime celebs from your favorite TV shows and from all the true crime circles. Last year, some of the guests that were there were people like Nancy Grace, Paul Holes, and Josh Mankiewicz, just to name a few. And that's not including so many of your favorite true crime podcast hosts. I really hope that you'll stop by and say hi to me if you decide to go. And if you would like to go, be sure to use my promo code to save 10% on your standard badge purchase. Just visit CrimeCon.com and register to buy tickets. During checkout, use my code CRIMINOLOGY19. One word, all caps. That's CRIMINOLOGY19 and that'll save you 10% off your standard badges. Thank you, and now on with the show. In 2016, 21-year-old Las Vegas college student, Sydney Land had her entire future ahead of her. Although she worked at the Palm Restaurant in Caesars Palace and did well there, her real goal was to one day get her dream job in the medical field, perhaps something dealing with children. Like many young people her age, Sydney was still finding her way, but sadly, her life was cut short in the fall of that year. Sydney was shot to death alongside her boyfriend of a few months, Neil Kaufman, 
despite a strong suspect in the murders of the pair, there's been no arrest as of yet. This has frustrated Sydney's family and led to questions about the integrity of the police department investigating the murders. On October 27th, shortly after noon, a friend of Sydney's hadn't heard from her or seen her, so they decided to go check on her at her apartment in the Union Apartments complex located in the west side of Las Vegas. When they entered the unlocked apartment, the friend found both Sydney and Neo dead and raced out of the apartment to call police. Police got the call at 12.40 p.m. and headed to the apartment. As they looked around the scene, it was obvious that the couple had been shot. Although police didn't immediately mention how Sydney was killed, they did state early on that Neo had been shot multiple times, and later it would be confirmed that Sydney had been shot too. A medical examiner would determine that the couple had been dead for at least a day. Word about the murders made its way to Sydney's brother, who had the difficult task of calling his parents to break the news that his older sister was dead. As if that devastating phone call to Sydney's parents wasn't bad enough, some of the things that they would later learn would trouble them greatly, and they would soon find out that Sydney hadn't told them everything that was going on in her life. As part of the early investigation, police questioned neighbors at the apartment complex. One of them told police that the day before Sydney and Neo's bodies were found, he had been in his garage when he heard something that sounded like firecrackers. When he stepped outside of his garage, a car parked outside took off. Police were able to access the young couple's phones, and it didn't take them long to find text from someone who would become the prime suspect in the case, a 23-year-old man named Shane Valentine. According to reports, Valentine had sent threatening texts to Neil Kaufman in the weeks before the murders. Earlier that month, Valentine was reported to have fired gunshots into Neil Kaufman's parents' home. Luckily, no one was injured. But unbeknown to Valentine, Neil Kaufman had moved from his parents' home a few months earlier into Sydney's apartment. Police report that earlier on the day that the shots were fired into the Kaufman residence, the threatening texts were sent from Shane Valentine to Neil Kaufman's cell phone. Shane Valentine was no stranger to police. He had a checkered past and a criminal record for a variety of charges including burglary, aggravated assault, and assault with a deadly weapon, some of them related to a home invasion. In March of 2016, about seven months before the murders, Shane Valentine was captured on surveillance video fleeing the scene after a home invasion. There was another troubling aspect to Valentine's criminal history. He was allegedly a pimp. One informant claimed that Valentine had killed Neil Kaufman because Kaufman was trying to become a pimp himself and had been attempting to lure prostitutes who worked from Valentine away. But the initial mention of pimps or prostitution is only part of the story here. There was a deeper link. It was alleged by at least one Las Vegas judge that there were some Las Vegas vice cops under FBI investigation for protecting pimps. Some of the sex workers were allegedly daughters of some Las Vegas police officers. It's a tricky and murky subject, and without diving into it too deeply, it seems as if there was definitely some sort of possibility of police corruption or interaction with Las Vegas pimps, which possibly included Shane Valentine. It's also been alleged that information about witnesses and informants was passed along by some of these corrupt vice cops to these pimps, and that may have resulted in putting lives in danger. Whatever the case, Shane Valentine hasn't been charged with the murders of Sidney Land and Neil Kaufman, 
He's currently in prison serving time for some of his home invasion-related charges. As frustrating as it is that Sidney's family hasn't had an arrest in their daughter's case, some of the things that have come to light about the man Sidney was living with have also been troubling. Neil Kaufman had allegedly been involved in various criminal activities, ranging from home invasions to drug dealing and gang affiliations. Sidney had told her parents that the apartment she lived in was shared between herself and a few other girlfriends. In reality, Sydney had taken on an apartment lease in her own name for $1,700 a month, and Neil Kaufman was living there rent-free. He also drove around in Sydney's car, which her parents had helped her to buy. And then there was the talk of Kaufman being a pimp, or at least trying to become one. That may very well have gotten him killed, and Sydney as well. Quite possibly she was collateral damage. The last two years have been a struggle for Sydney's family. Between losing their oldest child and not having an arrest in the case, as well as the rumors and possible police corruption within the Las Vegas Police Department, they're ready for answers, and they deserve them. Their beautiful daughter Sydney's life was ended with a gunshot to her face at close range. Searching for justice in Sydney's case continues to be a priority for her family. Sydney's mom, Connie, joined me to talk about just what has happened in the two years since her daughter was murdered. She also helps us to understand all of the events that were going on around Sydney's life at the time of her death. That conversation is next. Thanks, Connie, for joining us to discuss your daughter Sydney's case with us today. Thank you. It's my privilege. And Sydney was your oldest child, is that right? She was. She was my oldest of four kids. And tell us a little bit about what kind of person she was and what she wanted out of life. Sydney was just, she was just a really beautiful girl. She didn't have an enemy in the world. She was friendly to everyone. She always saw the best in people. And was always looking to be, you know, as two people as who they could be, not who they necessarily were. And there was just, she loved children. She was a really great sister. She was quiet, but she was still stubborn, but she had this really loving element about her and soothing. Um, She was just very soothing to be around and she was funny and quirky and, you know, um, she was just a, a great, a great daughter. She was a great girl. She wanted to get into the medical field and to do something with children, but she wasn't sure exactly what she wanted to do, but that was, those were her goals. And I guess at 21, that's still relatively young. People are still trying to figure mm-hmm. out what they want to do in life. And that's where she was at. And that's, and that's exactly where she was at. You know, I think that there's so much pressure put on these young kids of who they should be and where they should be and where they should be at at that point in their life. And she was still, she had gone to school. She was in school. And she was just still trying to figure what direction she wanted to go. 21 is when she was murdered along with her boyfriend, Nehemiah Kaufman. Yeah. How yeah. long had they been dating before the murders happened? Sydney, my understanding, Sydney had just met him about a month and a half to two months before. But she had just met him in well about July, was was what I was told was the introduction time. And were they actually living together at the time of the murder? You know, um, Sydney did not 
she kept it really quiet and she was living with him at the time of the murder and, and she had just gotten the apartment in her name um, about a month before the end of September is when she got that apartment. She was maybe a little bit of a private person. She wanted to keep that to herself. And so you didn't really know too much about the, the arrangements. Yeah. I think that she knew that we wouldn't approve. And um, she had told us that she was living with, she was working at the Palms restaurant, which is a fabulous restaurant steakhouse at, Caesar's palace. And so she was working there making great money and, um, and they had been closed for the summertime and remodeling the restaurant. And they had just opened it back up in like first of September. And she had told us that they, that she was going to be living with some girlfriends from work. And we had said, just stay home. You haven't been working all summer, save up your money. And that's, you know, and so I think that she didn't want us to let she didn't want to tell us that she was paying rent. She definitely didn't tell us that she was the only one on a lease at 1700 bucks a month for a single 21-year-old girl. And, you know, there was a lot that she didn't tell us because she knew we would tell her to not do it. And you mentioned you were worried or she was worried that you might not approve. Is it because of the, the financial part of it? Yeah, or was absolutely. It, okay. You didn't want her having such a big obligation at her age, uh, all in her name. Exactly. You know, we wanted her to be in school. Um, we wanted with her not having worked over the summertime with the restaurant being closed. You know, for her, for a single girl at 21 to be taking on a $1,700 a month apartment payment plus working in a car payment in school. I mean, at 21, that was a lot of financial responsibility. Didn't want her taking on. We wanted her to, you know, live at home. It wasn't fun, but, you know, if you want to stay at home, focus on school and go to school full time to get your education done. And that's kind of what we wanted her to do. And, and once you start into school, that becomes a difficult, hard road when you start taking on these financial obligations. If you can, take us back to the day of when you got the news that she had been murdered. How did you get that awful news? I had gotten a call from my son, Preston. And he had called and there was, and it was like 1226 PM on October 27th. It's one of those things that you just, you'll never forget the time and where you were at. And, and he called and there was this very panicked sound in his voice. And he said, mom, have you talked to Sydney? And I said, no, I haven't talked to her. And he goes, let me call you back. And I called him back and I go, Preston, what's wrong? And he goes, nothing, mom, I've got to call you back. And I, and he just did not sound right. And I called him back and I go, Preston, what's going on? He goes, mom, Lauren and, and Frankie haven't heard from Sydney. And I said, to the apartment. And he called back and I said, she's dead, isn't she? And he was crying. And he said, mom, she's gone. And he was on his way to the apartment. I called my husband at this fire station and I told him that Sydney had been killed. And I raced apartment and Preston, you know, Preston had gotten there before me and, you know, the two other kids were in school, so they didn't know at that time. And this was a total shock. This wasn't obviously news that you were expecting to hear. No, not at all. You know, not at all. How did your family deal with that, that shocking news to, to get that and have to digest that and move on from that you know it's it is even now 
there's times that it's completely surreal. And, you know, you hear stories of families and kids, people that have been murdered, and you're like, man, that would be so terrible. I don't know how they, I'm like, that's, that's our life. And from that moment, our life was trajected into a completely different way. And what I've learned is each person deals with grief differently. I have been on a pursuit, relentless pursuit, to find out who did this to her. And, you know, my husband's handled it differently. But to me, something good has to come out of something very tragic. And I'm not, I made that decision that day to not ask questions why. I made a decision to not question. It just is what is. Whether I like, I don't like it, there's nothing I can do to change it. So I'm not going to question why it happened. But what I am going to do is I'm going to do everything possible to make something good come out of something so tragic. That is, and that's what I have done in not only trying to find out who did this to her, but in, you know, helping other families or doing other things, because that's how I get to honor her. So you're asking more of the who versus why. So you just want to know at this point that the truth Well, we know that she was not the intended target. We know that her friends, and, you know, it's, what's hard about this, Mike, is that it was friends that did this to them. And we have heard so many different scenarios as to why this happened. But everyone has said, we tried to get, the people that were friends with them said, we tried to get Sydney out of the apartment. She wasn't supposed to be there that night. Well, that leads me to believe that, Clearly, they knew that it was going to go down. Neil was, you know, Sydney was not the intended target. And they, because she was there, when he was there, they shot her. They couldn't leave any witnesses. So they executed her. So you think Nehemiah was supposed to be the intended victim and because yeah. she was there with him, um, yeah. they didn't want to leave a witness. Yeah. And what was in his background that you know that might have him connected to something like this? You know, it's really unfortunate that you find out about, we have found out about him and about going on after the fact. And we, we, as parents, you know, you get this gut feeling or you have this, you know, a a nervous knot in your stomach and you're not sure what it is, this apprehension and, and this nervousness. And we felt that from the time we knew that she was with him and this, just this concern because he didn't have a car. He, you know, she was paying for that apartment. She was driving him everywhere and a good, healthy situation for a girl to be in. But he was involved. We found out that he was involved in home invasions. We found out he was selling drugs. We found out he was um, running guns. Doing selling drugs, selling guns. We found out he was involved in gang affiliations. We found out he was um, trying to get into human trafficking and pimping. But then we also found out that they threatened her life, and they told her they were going to kill her, and and him. And but it was because of the people that he was with. I know that um, 
it was after people had said, you know, or even the people from work, I had taken, I had taken her car away. I had co-signed on the car for her with her. And with him, I, I found out he was driving the car and I told her, I said, I'm not, you're not doing this. You know, if you want him to drive your car, then that's your business, but he's not driving my car. And so I took the car away and she was really upset. And I thought, you're not going to use my daughter. I'm not going to allow this. And the people at work after she passed, they said, we would also send me a ride home. And she said, oh, no, there's no way you can give me a ride home. Neil would kill me if he knew I got a ride home. I know my daughter would call to talk to Sydney. Nehemiah would answer the phone. And he would not let my daughter or her younger sister. Or Kendall would say, I called Sydney. And she would be like, please, Neil, just let me talk to her. Can I just talk to her for a minute? So he was very, very controlling. Um, you know, they had threatened to kill her on October 8th. So she was a sitting duck and she would have never have told us what was going on. And it's unfortunate that we've learned all these things after as to who he was and what he was involved in. So you think just meeting him and being connected to him was what ultimately led to this happening to her and if they hadn't met yeah. or she hadn't moved in with him, then she'd probably be alive. She would be alive. Absolutely. I believe that 100%. The frustrating thing is that there was, if I'm not mistaken, in, in researching this, there was a witness that saw somebody leaving the residence. Is that correct? You know, one of the, there's a whole lot more involved in, in the case. Um, as of now, there was a, initially there was a person named Shane Valentine who was a person of interest. He had actually was the one that threatened to kill Sydney and Nehemiah. He went over to Nehemiah's mother's home and shot up her house on October 8th. And two weeks later, they're found dead. Now, Nia was involved in doing some home invasions and some illegal things with Shane. Shane's currently serving a prison sentence for not only that shooting up Nehemiah's home, mother's home, but for some home invasion. So he's currently in prison and up for parole next October. But he is a person of interest. He was found with threats on his cell phone. The night of the murder, he was he was around the, the apartment around the time around that area, around the time of the murder, and he drove to California the next morning and they picked him up in California. They found his phone with all of his cell phone messages and and the gun that he actually used to shoot up Neo's mother's home. And they have eliminated him as a person of interest and a suspect. And what's the reason for that? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, this has been very frustrating. There's a lot of, there's a lot of backstory that goes. So there is a lot of police, there's corruption that's go that, the FBI has been investigating corruption in Vice for the past five years with the Metropolitan Police, the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Yeah, there may be a level of, of either cover up or you know connection to the the people involved, that type of thing. Yeah. yeah, I absolutely believe there's a reason why this case hasn't been solved. I believe that there are. We know that with and the, and you know this murder had has nothing to do with what is going on, but the people that are involved 
in Sydney's murder are tied to people involved in the investigation of Vice and the people involved in in that story. And so it's that has made it far more complicated. Complicated. It's made it very complicated. Yeah. Have you, know, you had any effort, or have you? Do you know if it's even possible? Is there any way another agency can investigate the case and sort of take over for them? The problem with the FBI is they won't investigate a murder necessarily, but they may investigate um, if it's an organized crime situation, if it's um, a human trafficking situation, if it's um, and that's when they'll take it on. But I have for two years, I've gone to the FBI asking them to take this case over and I've talked to them and, you know, and as long as the, as long as Metro has their hands on this and as long as they say they're actively working on the case, there's not a whole lot that we can do, but on the side, I'm still doing everything I can to collect names and information to be able to provide, to get this, to get this case moving forward because I believe the police aren't going to solve this and you know, either they may want to, but it's in their best interest not to. And, and, and I'm not going to allow them to sweep this under the rug. So I'm trying to put it on them and as much public awareness about this case, because if they're doing this to us, they're doing this to other families. They just don't have the fight that I have to keep pushing forward. And they're accepting answers that I'm not accepting. And it's scary to think that if, if it's going on with your case, how many other cases could be similar circumstances? Yeah. So what have you, what steps have you taken? Uh, I know you mentioned go, trying to go through the FBI, which is weird because some of the things you just mentioned that they handled are elements that are involved in this case, whether it's human trafficking yeah. or some of the other crimes that are possibly related to, to your daughter's case, you, you think they would be able to get an interest in that and, and use that to get their foot in the door to try and uh, take a look, but just no success so far with that. Um, you know, I, what I have been told by the FBI and I, and I've spoken to them, you know, for, for a while periodically and what I've been told by them is if they're working on a case, you'll never know about it. And so I don't think that they do a lot of, um, you know, I don't think that they're an agency that has a lot of fanfare and they just work behind the scenes and work quietly. And so, so if they're working on it, I don't know. I would, I would hope and pray that they are. So it's been two years now. And does it almost feel like the case is going nowhere? Like it's stuck where it's at now? You know, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, the detectives tell me I need to just keep my mouth shut, that the more that I talk, the harder it's going to be for them to get a conviction on this case. Um, they tell me I just need to focus on my family. Um, and, and I mean, repeatedly, the one detective's like, you just need to not, you just need to be quiet. You just need to be quiet. <laughs> just be quiet. Don't say anything. Just keep your mouth shut. Don't talk to anyone. Don't say any names. Don't say anything. So, you know, that's kind of what they, that's, that's what they, and then I have another detective that's, you know, that's easier to, you know, easier to work with. I was going to say, it's easy to tell somebody to just be quiet, but they're not the ones 
you know, that are telling you that they, they don't have a murdered child. Yeah. So, well, and they, the, you know, and the, and the truth is not only am I fighting, I'm, I'm grieving the loss of a daughter, but I'm fighting to find who did this to her. And then I'm fighting a police department that doesn't want to solve this. And I'm fighting corruption that I know is tied to this case and a district attorney's office that's cutting deals left and right. And, you know, and I'm trying to do everything that I can to slow down this corruption or to try to have them have some accountability in it. And it's just an uphill, it's an uphill battle because people don't want this case. I don't believe truly that they want this case solved. You've got a lot of hurdles in your way. I do. And that's fine. Do you have any hope at this point that the case will one day be solved? Do you do you feel like if it keeps going the way that it's going now that it will never be solved? You know, Mike, I, I think about this often. You know, people go people ask, Oh, you know, when you when they catch the killers, is that gonna be justice for you? Of course not. Are you kidding? That's just the second chapter in a nightmare. Then I get to go sit in a courtroom and I get to look at the people that are, you know, have been charged with the crime of killing my daughter. And I get to look at them and I get to hear some criminal defense attorney smear my daughter's name. And for the next 25 or 30 years, I'm going to go fight appeals and I'm going to go listen to parole boards and I'm going to, I'm going to do that. That's, that's not justice. They've already done damage. So everything that I do at this point, I know Sydney's safe. They can't touch her. They can't hurt her. They can't threaten her. They can do nothing. So I know that that nothing can be... I, I don't worry about her anymore. I miss her, but I don't worry about her, which is, you know, there's a, there's a piece that comes along with that. The fight that I have now is not so much for Sydney because anything that I do now isn't going to really bring justice for her. What this is doing is getting animals off of the street. This is protecting other families and other girls and other people that, and, and boys, whoever are involved with these people that have done this and the, and what they do, this is to protect them and to prevent our life happening to them. And so it is very important to me. I, I would be, if they didn't necessarily, unless they're going to solve this and get a capital murder conviction, that's what I'm, you know, that's, that's what I'm, but other than that, you know, or this is for other families now. It's too late for, for Sydney, in other words, but it might not be too late to help somebody else. Yeah. And, you know, at the very beginning, I said, something good has to come from this. And I, I, I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. You know, is it, is it creating an organization? Is, is it enacting a law? Is it, is it doing something where victims that have been, you know, not only murder victims, um, but people that have been victims of human trafficking and Sydney wasn't human traffic, but human trafficking, or if it's domestic violence and abuse, you know, these victims have to go testify against the people that have, that have, you know, done the crime against them, you know, that, that have committed the crime against these victims and they're petrified to do it because they're fearful for their life. And so for me, do I, do I set up a law or something that these victims don't have to testify? They don't have to be there. You can get a conviction on a murder 
and you don't have a wit, you know, you don't have a victim that can testify. Maybe this is something we can do that we can that we can enact and, and toughen some of these laws. But these animals that are committing these crimes and doing these things to people are locked away for longer periods of time and aren't walking. It's a revolving door for these criminals. So I do this for I fight for every other family because I know how horrific and terrible this the, the feelings that we have are. And I'm I'm always blown away whenever I talk to people in your position that have lost somebody and they somehow fight their way through, you know, the grief and anger and turn that around and turn it into something positive to whether it's a cause to change a law or to make a law or to help other people. It seems like a lot of people I talk to turn into some kind of advocates for that. So, you know, I, I wish you well. I hope that something you're able to do, whatever way you think will help other people. I hope that you're able to accomplish that. You know, I had someone tell me this a long time ago, and this has been a very healing and soothing uh, reassurance for me. You know, um, someone had said, you know, and this isn't necessarily a religious thing, or, but they said there is no beginning and there is no end. There's just a transformation of forms. And what I have learned is that my relationship with Sydney, it continues to grow. And although my relationship with her is not physical and I miss her here, I miss her voice, I miss her touch, I miss the events that we're never going to have with her, and I miss how I hate that our life has become this. But there is a very beautiful element to knowing that my relationship with Sydney is has become more of a spiritual or a sensory um, relationship. And I believe that she is around. I believe that she's always close. And I look for the little miracles that remind me that she's not so far away. And that lets me know that, that you know, that's a, that's a blessing that, even though she's not here physically, she is absolutely here spiritually and right close to, to our family still. And I think that Sydney's case is one, as parents, you know, we want our kids to live their lives, and but you want to protect them and you want to have them find the right partner eventually, the right person to be involved with, the right friends, the right boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever. And, you know, sometimes I think kids will look at it as their parents are being manipulative or controlling or trying to get involved in their business. But this is a prime example of what happens when people do wind up mixed up with the wrong people is, is what happened to Sydney. So, and, and that's really sad. And that's why parents I think are so protective over their kids and they want the best for them. And unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. Yeah. You know, I know that the month the month of October, my husband Steve would wake up and in the middle of the I would wake up in the middle of the night and he was sitting up in bed. And I go, what's wrong? How can he goes, I just can't sleep. He said, Some, I just am worried. He said, I'm going to move over. I'm going to move into Sydney's apartment so no one can go in and hurt her. I have a bad feeling. 
And he, and, and that was one night. And I thought that's really odd. And then he made a comment one time and he said, Connie, I'm going to go put a lawn chair in front of her door to protect her. And this was in October. And it was pretty close to the time that she died. And he was so anxious. And he said, I'm going to go grab her and I'm going to get her out of that apartment, Connie. And I go, Steve, you can't do this. If, if they are pulling her away from us, we can't. This can't be a tug of war with Sydney in the middle. We have to love her and welcome her. And if we have to welcome him, then let's welcome him. So we continue to have some influence on her. But they're pulling. They were pulling her away from us. And, you know, and as parents, I had, I had gone to lunch with Sydney. And I, I had told her this was, a, I, I got a phone call from a car dealership. And I told Sydney this was a month about a month to the day before the murder and I got a phone call from the car salesman of how abusive Neil was being to Sydney and how belittling and this car salesman said Mrs. Land I just want you to know that if this was my granddaughter or my niece or my daughter you do whatever you can to get her away from him if I had that work I would have clocked him the way he was speaking to your daughter and and I thought because I, I had arranged to have her go meet him person and I met with Sydney that for lunch that day and I told her I said Sydney I don't know I don't know what's going on but this is the phone call that I got and we had been arguing that day because of the phone call that had that I had gotten and I said let's just meet for lunch and I told her I said Sydney if you don't make some changes and you don't get out of this and away from this this is going to end tragically for you and we will put every roadblock in your way and every obstacle to try to protect you. But if you continue to go around them, there's nothing we can do. And we didn't really know anything at that time. So I don't know if that was just mother's intuition to say those words or if I knew that, you know, like maybe in the back of my mind there was something that we knew was going to happen, but we didn't know. I don't, but those were words that just we didn't use, I, I, I've never used and tragically it's crazy and a month you know as parents you know we we have this intuition about our children and you know if you feel like something's not quite right or and if, if parents have a bad feeling or feel like something isn't quite right do not discard do not discard those feelings as irrelevant or not important. If we would have acted on any of those from when we don't ask questions and, you know, or should have, could have, would have, you know, would, could things have been different had we gone over or happened. And, you know, so as parents, if, if you have bad feelings, if you are concerned about your children or a child or things don't feel right, then I would rather err on the side of caution and be aggressive in, in wanting to protect that child and do what I can in communicating with them or trying to protect them or whatever needs to be done to protect that child for whatever reason. It's just, you know, we have these instincts for a reason and, you know, and, and we were given premonitions and, and we just, we just did not act on them. And even though Sydney was an adult, she was 21, that doesn't, yeah. 
that doesn't stop you from wanting to protect her and and watch over her the best you could. Yeah. She's she's always my daughter. It doesn't matter what age. I'll always, you know, I watch over all my children. It doesn't matter what age. It, it's tough with, with what's going on in the investigation, but if somebody out there listening has information or they want to share something with investigators, who should they contact to to give that information to? You know, they can call um, the Homicide Division at Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, or you can call Crime Stoppers. And the phone number for Crime Stoppers is 702-385-5555. And do you have any social media or, or pages or websites set up for the case that anybody can go to if they want to learn more about it? You know, on my my personal page, I have a, you know, a Facebook because we've paid for all of our billboards and everything. So we're trying to raise money to be able to continue to pay for the billboards and investigators and and different things like that. So we've been personally financing that for the most part. So I have it on my website, but we're working on getting a website put up for updates as well as a, a page specifically for, for Sydney. And we keep updates that way. Well, if you do get those set up, send them to me, and we'll we'll definitely share them with listeners. Well, and it's been interesting, too. You know, I called Crime Stoppers because I asked the police if there are any leads. Is there anyone called in? Has anybody done anything? And they said, we haven't had one phone call. Not one phone call has come in to homicide in two years. Not one lead. So then I said, this isn't possible. We've done crime shows, billboards, news articles, press conferences, you know, news interviews, social media, I mean, across the, across the country, we've, we've, we've had closure across the country. So I called Crime Stoppers because I said, I just don't believe that. Sheer numbers, there would be calls in, even if they were, in, you know, even if they were bogus calls and, and meant, led nowhere. So I called Crime Stoppers. And he said, yeah, it's just really interesting. He said, one phone call in November of 2016, but there hasn't been one phone call since then. Well, I don't know how you could have, yeah, I don't know how you could have, you know, exposure to millions and millions of people, millions of people in the Las Vegas Valley, how there has not been one phone call to Metro or to Crime Stoppers on this case, not one. I hope at some point, though, you do get some kind of answers and, you know, yeah. ultimately an arrest, so you have some kind of information to, to work with and process, yeah. and if if you do get good news and there's an arrest in the case and you find out the truth about who did this, I hope that you'll uh, talk with talk with me again and I'd love to do a follow-up and update sure. the case. I'm so grateful. You know, this case will never be solved. If, if the responsibility of carrying this and getting this out falls you know, solely on my shoulders, I can do it alone. And so... I'm so grateful that you responded to my email. I'm so grateful that we're having this conversation that I can share this story because it's, it's keeping this out in the public and not letting this case go away that will eventually, someone will eventually come forward by sheer action and, and the activity that we're continually engaging in. There will be a response. And, and so, but it's, I can't do it alone. And so it's, because of you and, and every other person and news person that, that's 
time to hear our story and share our story, that's that's why this story is still alive, and that's why we're still moving forward. We're able to continue to do the things that we're able to do because of you guys. So I'm so grateful. I'm so truly grateful. Thank you once again for listening to this episode of The Murder of My Family. As we wrap up, I'd like to play previews of two true crime podcasts that I think you'll really enjoy. The first one is a really good one called Obscura. And the second is a brand new one called Into the Case with co-host Levi Page and Trisha Griffiths from WebSleuths.com. Be sure to check out their debut episode. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody. This is Justin from Obscura, a true crime podcast. Do you like single host narrative driven true crime that isn't afraid to get graphic On Obscura, we paint a picture of the lives of the criminals and victims before telling a story of the crime and how it unfolded. Add atmospheric production and audio clips such as 911 calls, and you have an idea of what we're about. If that intrigues you, type Obscura True Crime into your favorite podcatcher. You can't miss our logo. And we'll see you by the fire. I'm Levi Page. I'm Trisha Griffith. Web Sleuths presents Into the Case. Here's a sneak preview of season one. Yes, I have an emergency. Okay. I think I have somebody dead. Okay, what's the address, ma'am? Uh, Hill, what's the address here? I don't know. Is uh, it, we're in Great Water. Is it 147 Carolyn Drive? Yes, 147 Carolyn Drive. Okay, and who is it? Uh, the Dermans. They're both dead, Miss Williams? Uh, did you find both of them? No. No. Okay. No, it's just one. Okay. I don't know where the other one is. Yes, ma'am. We just come out and left our house uh, to go fishing. It appears to be, we not we can't get close enough to it, and I don't want to get close enough to it, but it appears like a body floats in the water against a tree over here. This place has tons of lake access, this sort of thing, but also multi-million dollar golf courses. As a matter of fact, uh, Tiger Woods actually played as part of the NEC World Series of Golf there. It's a very elite area. There's polo grounds in this area, but it is a place, in fact, that uh, people go and retire. So when you pick this area out, very bucolic, you think that it's going to be a place of safety. And of course, in, in this, it, it turned out to be probably in the history of Putnam County, one of the most uh, notorious cases that's ever occurred in that area. Mr. Derman's uh, head was decapitated. Whoever did this is certainly capable of doing it again. To listen to Into the Case, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.